Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of the Comfort Films podcast. Today, we're discussing two more John Carpenter horror films to round out the month Prince of Darkness, which was released on October 23rd, 1987, and In the Mouth of Madness released February 3rd, 1995, in the United States. Now, these two films, along with The Thing, comprise John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. And we thought, what better way to round out our John Carpenter month with a trilogy? Who doesn't love a trilogy? And we can just end the world with him two more times. <laughs> <laughs> we did consider other films, so we've watched a lot of John Carpenter this month yeah, um, and thought about what is the definition of a horror film and asked a whole lot of uh, questions that are probably overthinking, but that's what we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we ended up deciding to go with uh, Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness because these are, you know, connected to the thing, which is the last episode that we, we did uh, in the third week. And we thought it was a good opportunity also to just talk about how he explores this apocalypse theme in multiple ways, uh, because there are similarities across three movies. There are also a lot of differences as yeah. well. So across all three of the films, the humans are trapped. So in the thing they're stuck at, Outpost 31 in Antarctica, you know, they have nowhere to go. And then the second film, they change it. So we're in Los Angeles, you're in a city, and you're trapped in a church. So in that, it, it's like the threat is a little bit different because there are people all around you, but it actually is even more horrifying because the devil has possessed all of the people around you. Yeah, uh, he's controlling them and, you know, they've blockaded the doors. So these people are now stuck in this building, which makes it a bit more of a claustrophobic situation in a different way. <laughs> yeah, like you go outside, Alice Cooper is going to stab you with a bike frame. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a rough neighborhood it's a rough neighborhood i mean that could happen any day here <laughs> um, we live in la any day we're worried about alice cooper stabbing us with a bike frame it's just <laughs> the way it is here well we also have in the mouth of madness okay you're trapped in a new england town you're trapped in new hampshire and it's this quaint town it looks very nice on the surface there's a lot of heavy-duty evil lurking underneath, and you cannot escape the town. I you mean, yeah, we've been trapped in a New England town as well, so <laughs> we've had a lot of these experiences. Yeah, we could relate. We could relate. You know, when we were trying to move out to Los Angeles, we kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. And by the end, we were just so ready to go. I mean, I wouldn't have cared if all of our possessions were just in the street. <laughs> I, I, even if the car was gone, I would have said, let's run to California. You were like losing it big time because you're like, and you said, we can't get out of here. And so when we finally did leave, we like literally drove to Ohio on the first day. And that was with a stopover to visit of your Aunt Rita on the way. So you were ready to go when we finally escaped our version of Hobbs End. <laughs> <laughs> and they also are dealing with kind of forces of darkness um, in all three movies. Um, of course, in The Thing, we have our kind of alien presence that can turn into anything. In Prince of Darkness, we have Satan 
Or the son of Satan or the father of Satan or a combination thereof. Team Satan. <laughs> it's a little bit confusing. Either way, it's an entity of made of green liquid in a big glass canister. So, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, in, in the Mouth of Madness, it's this Lovecraftian kind of old ones filtered through successful writer Sutter Kane. So those forces are present and bringing about this end time um, in each movie. Well, and each film has a different uh, form of evil. Because in The Thing, I mean, that's terrifying. You know, it, it takes human form, you know, eventually. It can also take animal form, as we see. So you don't know when you run into a person, if they're real, you don't know if your dog is real. So it, it's like, I don't know what, what you want to say, the enemy within, the mm -hmm. invisible enemy. You don't know who it is. It could be anyone. In Prince of Darkness, all of the possessed, it's very clear that they are possessed. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it takes people a minute to catch on, but they kind of have this zombie kind of persona that they take on and you know it's not like you have to do a blood test to figure it out <laughs> you can tell by their dead face right right or their insanity you know whatever either way it's it's obvious when people that know each other see each other they instantly know something is off yeah they, there's no mistaking it they pick up on it pretty quickly and then in the mouth of madness it's very clear because they are uh hellish nightmare beings so <laughs> if you got tentacles you're no good you if know your uh yeah and if your eyes are splitting into like you know two corneas then something's wrong with you so a good visual signal that things have gone bad yeah it, it really is out there you know it's just it, it it's interesting that it's like does it want to be known you know does it not want to be known we go through all of the forms, and that's what I enjoy about doing this Apocalypse trilogy together, is we actually see all of the different permutations of the Apocalypse. Yeah. How could it come? Where will it come? Yeah. You know, What and, will be the tipping point? And what will be the outcome? Like, in the thing, the outcome is very up to the viewer, I guess, as we explored at great length. Um, in Prince of Darkness... The apocalypse has been averted, at least for a time, but we'll dig into that a little bit um, and look at that question as well. And in the Mouth of Madness, there's no question the apocalypse is upon us and there's no going back. So, you know, I love that he, you know, did a riff on this uh, in, in different ways. And then he also has uh, this color thing that you noticed. Oh, yeah. They have a different color, which I feel symbolizes each film because you see it primarily. Like in The Thing, it's very simple. Blue, right? Blue everywhere. And that really fits because you think about cold, you think about ice, you know, you think about sadness, you've got that depression, you know, you're out by yourself at this outpost. Most yeah. of the people are drinking heavily. They're, they're, they're not... They're not too happy. So blue definitely works there. And from there, we go into Prince of Darkness. And Prince of Darkness, of course, our primary color is green because that's the color of Satan in the canister. You know, that that's what we see there. Um, also, I do notice that we have some yellow that, that shows up in Prince of Darkness as well. Kind of like a secondary color. Yeah. 
Well, we see that wide shot in the basement where they have the canister, you know, and the canister's in the center of the frame, and you look at the walls on either side. You've got, like, this yellow. And it's it's candlelight, really, is where that yellow is coming from, because there's all those candles burning down there. But green is definitely the primary, and then when we have, like, that parking lot shot later, there's green light in it. So they were definitely looking at green as being like this thematic color in Prince of Darkness, which I think is really interesting because I don't think I've ever <laughs> associated green with the devil. Um, but hey, it works. I mean, it, it's kind of like uh, otherworldly. So it's interesting. In the Mouth of Madness is interesting because I would say the primary color in that is, is red. And then again, we, we have some yellow but we actually end up with all of the colors in In the Mouth of Madness, which makes sense because that's the culmination of this Apocalypse trilogy. You know, Sutter Kane actually says at one point, my favorite color is blue. And then all of a sudden, everything is blue all around you. You know, it's uh, it's great the way that they build on it. Uh, I think it's a good point that all the colors kind of come in because that is the movie where the apocalypse actually gets there. So it's kind of just encompassing everything. The red really makes you think about like the author's name on the cover of a book. Yeah. You know, that that is the first thing that, that pops. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, of course, you think about blood as well. Yeah. So it, it really ties in. There's a lot of blood in this movie. I'm sure we'll come up with other ways that there's similarities and differences in these movies. But what we're going to do first is go ahead and dig into Prince of Darkness because this is a meaty film oh yeah <laughs> with a lot of info um for us to manage uh it's funny because john and i are neither science nor math people no uh, but there is a lot of physics uh especially theoretical physics happening in prince of darkness um and so the funny thing is you can enjoy the movie without knowing about it but when you start digging into that piece of it it kind of goes to a totally different place and that's kind of what we ended up looking at when we looked at prince of darkness this time so uh it's really crazy but i hope you'll enjoy the ride like we did <laughs> Well, it's, what's interesting is with Prince of Darkness, first and foremost, John Carpenter wanted to make a B-movie because he had too much studio interference, he felt, during Big Trouble in Little China. So he wanted to be with a production company where he would have complete control. And that's what he has. I mean, everything that ends up on the screen is what he wanted. So that's great because, you know, when you have a director like John Carpenter and you know he can translate his vision to the screen exactly as he sees it there's something really of value there there's something to cherish and it's just like you said you know i've seen this movie a bunch of times and each time i have a wildly different reaction to it because i catch something else <laughs> that totally happened to me too i mean we watched it like probably three or four times this week and the first time i'm just enjoying it you know yeah it's like kind of like almost a zombie movie end of the world satan's coming okay you know it's interesting yeah but i think the like third or fourth time i watched it i'm hearing things that i feel like i've never heard before even though i know i've heard them before because i'm just looking at it through a different lens and you know i think that really speaks to the strength of john carpenter as a filmmaker because he is tackling like some really complex ideas that are very difficult 
to explain, even if I'm just talking about them, much less trying to explain them in a story. And he does a really fine job here. I, I, I was very impressed with that. What really made me respond to it so much this time is that you're using your mind to win the day. Yeah. You know, you have, you know, these these possessed zombies around the building that are trying to attack you, you know, and, and they're really getting to you through violence. But what they're using is, you know, their minds. Prince of Darkness has kind of an assault on Precinct 13 sort of feel to it. Yeah. You know, they're in a rundown part of town, you know, and you have these terrifying people outside. I think one thing that you pointed out is that, you know, it's kind of like a Western or like an action movie in a way because you're fighting off this outside force. But whereas like Arnold Schwarzenegger would like put on a whole bunch of guns, you know, <laughs> and go fight it. These people are like setting up computers and translating old, you know, books and all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was really funny because it is like the geeks taking over and like fighting evil. Um, in a totally different way than we've seen. And and somehow they managed to make it exciting. Yes. Even though, you know, that's what's happening. Because, I mean, you don't think that's going to be exciting when the good guys are fighting back with books. <laughs> but, they, <laughs> but hey, I love that. So. I think it's great. It really does echo a Western. Yeah. Because as, you know, the crew shows up to the church, each one of them... Well, I shouldn't say each one of them, but a lot of them have some type of encounter with the homeless people in the area, which are possessed. Yeah. You know, Alice Cooper, who is the head of this evil homeless brigade, he's called Street Schizo <laughs> in the credits. Um, you know, he just is kind of staring down the people that are going in. Yeah. And you can feel that there's going to be a showdown. Um, you also have the, the homeless bag lady who's terrifying. Yeah, she's very creepy and weird. Right? Like when Donald Pleasant's priest is trying to, to go in, she comes over and kind of puts her head down by his crotch and like rubs it. And then she's holding the, this this old can full of maggots. Oh, so disgusting. Yeah, there's a lot of gross bug stuff in this movie um, because uh, the Satan force that's in the canister kind of reaches out psychokinetically to control the homeless people. And then these bugs, like, I kind of thought it was a toss-up whether they were being controlled or whether they were just acting weird because you know the world is changing because it seems like the sun and the moon are even changing mm -hmm. um so it, it's like you know it, this event is affecting even the fabric of reality reality being a very very big concept in this movie well i mean it's so scary the way that the the devil or satan whichever you want to use um uses these people to communicate he makes them talk and it's this distorted terrifying voice yeah like the bag lady is like so good you're opening the church again father you yeah, know something it, like that and you're like whoa whoa it is like electronically distorted yeah almost yeah it's, it's really creepy you know there is a book that explains the evil 
you know, that, that we're seeing there. Because we actually have this guardian priest who passes away right at the beginning of the film. And this guardian priest, he is at this church all of the time. He only goes out once a week to get food. And every day he takes this key from his little treasure chest, goes into the basement of the church, and he checks in on the canister because he needs to know what's happening there. It's like he's a, a jailer. You yeah. know, he needs to make sure that there isn't any chance of escape. You know, his name is Father Carlton. Father Carlton actually finds out that, you know, through his everyday experiences, that he's feeling the energy. He feels that Satan is going to get out. Because the way this canister is actually set up, which is crazy, is there's actually a handle inside of the canister so that Satan can get out. And it can, yeah, it can only be open from the inside. Which honestly doesn't make any sense at all. Because, like, this Brotherhood of Sleep, which is what Father Carlton was a member of, and it goes all the way back, we find, to, like, the time of Jesus, I guess, um, that they've been guarding, like, this evil in the canister. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm unsure as to how it got in there, and also why they would set it so that it can get itself out. It's a little bizarre. Um, there are a lot of things in this movie that are like unanswered questions to me that I have trouble with, but I think that, you know, the more I think about it, the more I can resolve a lot of these things. Um, but there's, there's actually two major books in, in this. There's this Brotherhood of Sleep explained in this diary of Father Carlton. And we should say that this is all in the Roman Catholic tradition. These are Roman Catholic priests that have been protecting this canister. Yeah. And at the time that Father Carlton passes away, he's actually preparing to speak with someone higher up because he knows that Satan is going to be getting out of that canister any day now. Yeah. And he needs to prepare people to, to you know, to get ready. You know, so that they can combat this. Yeah, and he then dies. He's very old. Um, I don't know why they still had him as the guardian of the thing, whatever. Maybe they just thought it wasn't that important. Um, <laughs> Forget it. We'll just let Joe do it. Just but, forget it. He can do know, the devil job, whatever. But, you know, in this basement area where they have it stored, you, there's another book that's been written in and rewritten and all this stuff. It's kind of like a really nice illuminated manuscript. But it has all of this info, and they end up bringing in this person to translate it, Lisa, who knows, like, ancient religious texts. And, you know, she gets all of this information from this book that is crazy. That's how they find out that this Brotherhood of Sleep goes back to the time of Jesus. Jesus was like an alien. Yes. Like, and he was telling people about the evil in this canister, but the, you know, the powers that be didn't want, you know, to have this information revealed. So they killed him. And then his disciples were tasked with protecting this canister until Jesus's teachings could be proved scientifically through technology, which apparently is happening in the present day of this film. And that's why, you know, um, the priest played by Donald Pleasance, brings in Birak, which is Victor Wong, Excellent. who's a physicist and friend of his. Um, it's all very crazy and weird. And so 
the premise of the movie itself is almost hard to get a handle on if you're going to go into like the deep end with it. The priest actually puts together this team, starting with Victor Wong Birak, who's uh, a, a physicist, a professor of physics. They bring in biochemists from the school as well, and Birak brings in a lot of his best physics students. And then they have, as I said, uh, this character, Lisa, who can translate um, ancient languages. And they also have a radiologist who can x-ray things and read x-rays. So it's this, it's this real team of intelligent people who have a lot of expertise in science, in religion, in languages. And all together, they go about trying to figure out what's going on. You know, is this, you know, dangerous? Can it be controlled? Um, and it's, it's really interesting to see how they all grapple with this problem. Um, because it's certainly not your garden variety issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, everyone is from academia, wh which is interesting. So the students don't even know why they're going to this church. They're just told they need to cancel their weekend plans because you're going to be staying in this church and you're going to be working. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, it's like it really does have the makings, you know, of almost like a, a secret agent film or a war picture. It's like, we can't give you the details of your mission <laughs> until you're there. And um, it's neat. Yeah, that is cool. I didn't think about it that way. I like that. Well, and we also want to bring up that the reason that Priest and Birak know each other is they actually did a series of debates on the BBC uh, in the past. That's something that is mentioned. And what's interesting in this film um, is that Birak and Priest actually have these debates in the film. Uh, they're in an office at the church, and they have two wonderful scenes where they really dig deep to try to uncover what they can do to, to make this work. And yeah, what they're experiencing and just, it's, it's smart. Like, I don't often see a movie that deals with a subject like philosophy and science and does it in a way that is understandable. I mean, it's confusing, but sure. it's understandable too. So I really think that we should go ahead and dig into what I think is probably the main theme of this movie, which is like an examination of the places where religion and science kind of overlap. Um, because the these debates that Birak and Priest had done, I guess we presume that they're about the differences between science and religion, but I think what Carpenter is exploring is more about the similarities and where science and religion kind of intersect with each other. It's introduced from the very first part of the movie. You know, we have the scene with Priest um, discovering this Brotherhood of Sleep diary, going down and exploring um, the uh, location where the canister is stored. But then we cut that in with Birax lecturing in the, the classroom to his physics students. And he's talking about quantum mechanics. And he's almost describing it, in my opinion, in words that sound like faith. Um, when he's talking about reality and how uh, we perceive things, He's saying, say goodbye to classical reality because our logic collapses on the subatomic level into ghosts and shadows. He then goes on to talk about Job and he goes on to compare like Job's friends who were 
you know, saying that good things shouldn't happen to, to bad things shouldn't happen to good people to the scientists in the 1930s who had kind of like a meltdown because they realized that there were certain things that you can't scientifically prove. So religion is more comfortable depending on faith and not having to prove things. But at the same time, it is seeking proof. And then science is always seeking proof. But then there is theoretical science where you cannot have proof. Um, and I think that was just so well done. And, and it, it continues to come up throughout the film over and over. Then at the same time, as I said, we have the priest discovering the canister. And a point that I thought you made that was really interesting was that we have Donald Pleasance again kind of burdened with having to deal with this ultimate evil. Yeah. In that case, it was Michael Myers. In this case, it's friggin' Satan. So right. it's like it's just getting worse, getting worse for old Donald Pleasance. It is, and he doesn't even have a six-shooter this time, you know? <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's very similar character. Donald Pleasance, again, incredible in this film. It does feel like a much deeper exploration of Dr. Sam Loomis. You know, this character has so much that he goes through in the film, and I don't want to jump ahead because I know we're going to head there. But, you know, he has such a trial during this film. You know, and he also reminds you in a way of Hal Holbrook from The Fog. Yeah. Because Hal Holbrook, you know, he was not a good guy, but he did feel burdened, you know, emotionally and literally by holding that enormous cross made of gold <laughs> and dealing with, you know, these lepers that, you know, his ancestors had, you know, murdered. Yeah. You know? I mean, and he also had a book that illuminated the story for him as well. Yes. So there is a major tie back to Father Malone, which I think is really cool because um, we love the fog. So <laughs> Oh, it's part and, well, and that's a very moody film. And I feel like Prince of Darkness, one of the biggest things that we have in this is mood. This is a slower moving film and you really let yourself just, you know, get caught in its spell. Yeah. And you slowly go through each frame and you can feel it. And Gary B. Kibbe shot this once again. An incredible job. Mm -hmm, definitely. He's another great cinematographer that partners with Carpenter. And we see him do amazing work um, in this in many different cases. And, and he's another expert with light. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's it's super cool. But, yeah, this canister. I mean, we have to talk about the canister for a minute, I guess. It's, I, I don't know what's going on with this thing. It's super huge. It's green. It's swirling. It starts leaking liquid at one point. And, you know, up until this point, Satan, canister Satan, let's call it Satanister. <laughs> has been content to use his psychokinetic energy to reach out and control people or change the environment. But uh, when these people show up and there's this huge crew um, investigating, he has decided it's time to come out and, and play. And <laughs> the way that he does this is by like spraying the liquid at people, which honestly to me becomes a bit humorous after 
even the first time. I mean, it's just like squirting green goo at people. Yeah. And it, it looks kind of crazy. <laughs> so I'm not sure how successful I find that. Um, especially with, you know, the, the, the gravity of what's going on otherwise in the movie. Um, but I guess it's not above like a little bit of the ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of like you feel like Satan is just literally pissing in the mouths of people. You know, yeah. I mean, that that's what you have, because it's almost like you're at a carnival. You know, he's just <laughs> aiming for the mouth and he never misses. And that's <laughs> that's it. And then you're possessed. That's it. Yeah. And, and this type of like direct possession is not something that people can recover from. No. You know, at the end, when kind of things have, have resolved, anybody that was directly touched by this liquid and changed seems to die. Um, whereas, you know, the homeless people who are just controlled mentally seem to be able to just return back to who they were and walk away. Um, so, it, you know, there is that distinction, which I think is interesting. But there's so much complicated shit happening in this yes. movie yes. that it's, like, hard to keep a handle on it. Like, okay, we're talking about reality. We're talking about whether, re like, what is reality? How do, you, how do you define it? And, you know, these physics students keep, keep mulling over this question, you know? And I think it's really interesting because one of the conversations that Catherine has early on with Brian Marsh is about reality and how she's having a problem kind of getting her head wrapped around this question of quantum, you know, what is reality in a quantum environment? Um, because she's just like, Oh, I just, I just keep going back to classical reality. Right. And that is kind of, I think a natural thing, like our perceptions, our day-to-day -day perceptions are the things that we understand. Um, and then when you get into like this theoretical physics question, it's so divorced from our perception of reality that it's super difficult to understand. Um, and in this movie, that really takes shape in a lot of these conversations that they're having. And I have to give like so much credit to Victor Wong for handling so much difficult dialogue yes. about uh, matter, antimatter, you know, mirror dimensions, all this type of stuff, because there's this great conversation that he has with the priest um, where he's, they kind of, uncover the entire theme of the movie um he says and i'm gonna quote it directly because there's no way i can summarize it and have it work suppose what your faith has said was essentially correct suppose there's a universal mind controlling everything a god willing the behavior of every subatomic particle now every particle has an anti-particle it's mirror image its negative side. Maybe this universal mind resides in the mirror image instead of in our universe as we wanted to believe. Maybe he's anti-God, bringing darkness instead of light. So, my understanding of that idea is that he is coming to pri the priest and saying, we're going to 
operate under the assumption that there is a God and that your religion is correct, that there's this God, he controls and directs everything in our universe. And if that's the case, then every matter needs like its opposite, like anti-matter. And so a God would need an anti-God. And that anti-God exists in another universe. And he's trying to come into our universe. And that's what we're dealing with here. So this Satanister isn't just, you know, an evil entity. It's actually the opposite of everything. And like a, a, a collision between like a matter and an antimatter, a god and an anti-god will destroy everything. So this film actually has a lot in common with Rosemary's Baby as well as The Exorcist. When you see Priest show up at the church, the shot of him looking up at the church really puts you in mind of that, you know, cover shot of The Exorcist, you know, what we see on the poster. And it's very much a similar feeling. You know, you're going out there to face the ultimate evil. It is daunting. It is terrifying. This is all or nothing. We also do come in, of course, with Rosemary's baby. So Kelly is actually in the basement with the canister, and she bumps into something, it looks like, and then she has this bruise. And as it goes on, it actually shows that her skin is raised around this bruise, and it looks very similar to the logo for the band Blue Oyster Cult. <laughs> yeah. uh, Blue Oyster Cult, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper, that song was actually used in 1978's Halloween. So Blue Oyster Cult had an album called Agents of Fortune in the year 1976. The reason I bring this up, if you look at the cover of Agents of Fortune from Blue Oyster Cult, you see a magician on the cover. And this magician is actually doing card tricks, which really puts you in mind of Brian Marsh. Now, the man on the cover of Agents of Fortune has, you know, darker hair and a darker mustache. But somehow I have to tell you, both Brian Marsh and the magician on the cover of Agents of Fortune really have a similarity. Um, so it, it's really weird. And of course, you have this Blue Oyster Cult logo. And that actually uh, represents Saturn. Well, it's, it's an astrological staff, I think they say. Um, and yeah, I think John Carpenter said in the uh, commentary that he saw it on the Blue Oyster Cult album, uh, which was really funny. And then, yeah, you notice these other things about it, which were really weird. Well, but you can actually see in this ancient text that we actually have Lisa, you know, translating, transcribing, that this symbol is in there. Now, it's not exactly like the Blue Oyster Cult logo. Uh, it, it's a little shorter, I feel like, you know, but it's instead of coming to a cross on the bottom, it comes to more of a, a star with, with like an open center. Yeah. And when we actually have Frank outside, who is murdered, uh, by the bag lady in a fantastic scene that we will talk about. He has a scar on his face. He has this green scar, which looks very similar to this different form of this blue oyster cult symbol, which is in this ancient text. Yeah, 
And that, that image, that symbol just keeps coming back. Um, but the first place we do see it is on Kelly's arm where she's kind of becoming like this parasitic host. Yes. Um, for the devil or whatever the hell guy, <laughs> green guy. Right. Um, but yeah, so, and, and she like goes through this thing where she looks pregnant, but then she reabsorbs this liquid and it's just, it's really freaking bizarre. Um, but I think what the point you were trying to make was that it feels like thematically similar in some ways to Rosemary's baby, because yes. we have this human who is kind of hosting her body is hosting Satan um, and yeah, there, there's also a visual uh, similarity because those two posters also use green as well. So I wouldn't have thought of that because again, when I heard, saw green for Satan, I was like, well, that's weird. But the exorcist and Rosemary's baby both have like this green tint as well. It's really interesting to go and see a movie like this where Satan actually takes someone over because when he takes over Kelly, it's very creepy. Her flesh just starts to melt off. She kind of looks like she could be Fred Krueger's sister. You know, it, it's very scary. It also puts you in mind of sunshine when people would stare at the sun too long <laughs> and their skin would crack and peel and melt and, you know, burn it. It's a very, very scary image. It's like a pizza monster. <laughs> pizza the Hut. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, we have, you know, Satan, which is the Prince of Darkness. And then, you know, he wants to get his dad, who we guess is the King of Darkness. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe there's a Queen of Darkness, a Jack of Darkness. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's Catherine at the end. I don't know. We'll see. Right? The I queen. mean, who knows? Who does know? We certainly don't. We'll talk about that, you know, too. But uh, to drag us back into theoretical physics again. No! <laughs> no! No school! We have to. <laughs> I mean, this is the part, man. I know. We learned, like, ah! we learned too much in this movie. But, you know, hey, what are you going to do? Right. Um. So there's this part at the beginning where Catherine and Walter, which who's played by Dennis Dunn, who was in Big Trouble in Little China, um, they're talking about different things with uh, their physics lessons. And Catherine has this whole conversation about Schrodinger's cat, um, which is this major concept, pretty well known even to lay people, about quantum physics, which talks about in the simplest terms that I probably will butcher, <laughs> um, you got a cat in a box with an object that could kill it. And until you observe this cat, you don't know whether it's dead or alive. Um, so it's in the box. It exists in the box. But you don't know its state until you can actually observe it. And so until you observe it, you have to assume that the cat is both dead and alive. We think that having Catherine discuss Schrodinger's cat is kind of a nod at the idea that at the end of the movie, she may be Schrodinger's cat because Catherine crosses the barrier into the mirror universe 
and we can't see her anymore. We know she's in there. We don't know if she's dead or alive. So I guess we have to assume that she's both. And John points out that her name is Catherine with a C. Right. So she is kind of literally a cat. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what we've got. And at the very end of the film, when she does go to the other side, one of the things I noticed on her last viewing is she tries to reach back to the light to get back out. And that's when the mirror is destroyed. Yeah. And so her going to the dark side actually makes sense to me at that point because that would be a very good talking point you know these people abandoned you here they didn't try to get you out you saved them and they killed you and they locked you in hell literally yeah so after that why would you want to help these people so you know if you're stuck in hell and and that is you know the debate that's what they're coming at you with i don't really know that you have much that you can say in defense yeah and i mean again we have like the science and religion collision mm-hmm. uh, because she's gone into this mirror universe i have questions about this um, especially because we bring in time travel as an element here as well um, is this is this mirror universe a wormhole where she's gone into the future? Like, there's a lot of questions there. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But also, it's very explicitly stated that she gave up herself for them. Yes. And so there's like a real Christ figure element to Catherine where she has sacrificed herself for the world, you know? She jumped into this mirror universe to save everyone. She tried to get back. She couldn't. They had to break the mirror. That's the connection between the dimensions. And, yeah, it it's, it's super complicated. And it's so smart to be able to combine science and religion, which I think we think of as opposites. Yes. I mean, there's always been a separation of church and state, <laughs> and this is trying to reunite the two. It's saying that you need to put those two together for everything to be in order. So it's a really big statement that's made in this film. Yeah. And, you know, evil is everywhere. That's where things get really, really confusing, is the priest talks about there is literally evil everywhere. It's on a subatomic level. You know, it's all around us. It's influencing us. It's making us do these things. Yeah. You know, and we actually even get into, you know, dreams. Dreams are such a massive component of this film. So the Brotherhood of Sleep, it is revealed that once you are near, you know, the canister or another person who is from the Brotherhood of Sleep. At this point, that would have, of course, been priest Donald Pleasance because he kind of inherited this disaster. Um, you know, what happens is that you have these shared dreams of the future. You have these visions of the exterior of the church, and you witness what looks like demons, devils, whatever you want to call it, in this church, this dimly lit church. It's terrifying. It's a horrifying image. And then you hear this crackling message that explains to you 
that there are people contacting you from the year 1999 and they want to tell you that this is what the future will be unless you stop it and they say to you that they don't have enough advanced technology at this point to communicate with you when you're conscious, when you're awake. So they have to do it when you're asleep. Now, everyone in the building that falls asleep has the same dream. So you understand that there is, you know, this real weight to it. The priest actually asks Barack, because, you know, Barack is asleep on the desk and he wakes up, and he said, you know, did you have this dream? And Barack is like, look, my mind is my own. I can think whatever I want. That's no one else's jurisdiction. <laughs> but, you know, the funny part is, is that his mind is essentially like a telephone. You know, it puts you in mind of like uh, Terry Gilliam, right? And 12 Monkeys. And you don't know, is, uh, is the army of the 12 Monkeys real? Are these people that are coming from the future back real? It, you know, is Bruce Willis just nuts or is he, you know, on this heroic mission? You don't know. And this movie does just a wonderful job of putting you right in the middle of that. You don't know which way to go. People think Barack is crazy. People think the priest is crazy. People want to leave. And no one can leave. I mean, going back to our no one can leave point, Etchinson, who is actually an assistant of Leahy, is going to leave because Leahy is the professor. He's the student. He's going to be covering some extra credit seminar for the weekend. So he has to leave. And as he leaves, he's actually murdered by Alice Cooper. Uh, it's a very funny death because as he is murdered, he actually has his Walkman down around his neck so we can hear the Alice Cooper song, Prince of Darkness. And, you know, Alice Cooper drives the frame of a bicycle through, you know, his chest and just murders him while the song is playing. So it, it really amps up the fact that no one can leave. We also see the homeless people barricade, you know, the church doors so that no one can escape. Yeah, and they block the exits where Etchinson is. And he also sees like this weird crucifix with a pigeon yes. stuck to it. Which you had pointed out is another callback to Agents of Fortune by Blue Oyster Cold. They have a song that has lyrics about saying, I'm not your pigeon or something. Yes. So it's so weird. I mean, it's like John Carpenter just took every single thing that exists in our world and beyond yeah. and balled it up and shoved it into one movie. I don't even know how he did it. I, I mean, don't it either. Just has, it has everything. It's so hard to keep a handle on this just talking about it. Yes. In a, you know, in a podcast that is going to probably be longer than the movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, he manages to do it. And, you know, if it wasn't enough that we have, like, Satan and Mirror Universe and all this, now we have, like, this element of time travel that's introduced with, you know, being able to communicate backwards in time with this dream and uh, it's it's nuts. And that also did open me up to this idea that I had mentioned of the wormhole, um, which is that, you know, if you have this wormhole, like if this mirror is actually a wormhole, then Catherine could have gone through this wormhole and ended up in a different time. 
and we do see the dream one last time at the end of the movie Brian Marsh has the dream and this kind of dark figure in the doorway which before we assume to have been this prince of darkness satan guy corporeal form is now Catherine and you then have to ask the question okay so she was Jesus is she now satan you know, you also have to ask, you know, is that the future and this is Catherine? Is this Brian Marsh only having a dream because he has been affected by these events? Or is this a prescient dream again, like the dreams they were having before? So it's it's a mind fuck, <laughs> I would say. Well, and when we see Catherine, she also has her arms up which also kind of looks like she is on the cross, you know, like she's on a crucifix. Yeah. So you're like, wait, what's happening? And when you watch the film, one of the things that I thought about was what if Brian Marsh was dreaming and he was having these ideas? So, you know, Brian and Catherine, they are in the same class, but the way he does a double take with her, it could simply be that he's interested in her and he wants to ask her out. But what I thought about is he possibly had a dream that he would meet her, that they would have this happen. The dialogue that we have between Brian and Catherine is very, very strange. It is. You know, and she's like, you know, maybe they're talking about relationships. They're talking about themselves. And, you know... She says to Brian, well, you know, maybe tell me in a couple of years or, you know, yeah. something like that. So it's like, wait, are they going to meet again in the future? There's another thing that that's happening. And then, you know, Georgia, you brought up a great point. What if it's Catherine that's sending this message from 1999? Or what if it's what if it's Brian Marsh? What if it's this team? It could be. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't know. I mean, we do know that Brian is Brian continues to be haunted at the end. I mean, the the major thing that happens throughout this movie is that our people who are devoted to religion or science both kind of lose their faith. Mm -hmm. So regardless of whether their faith is in science or religion, over the course of the movie, they start to lose it. Um, Calder, uh, which is uh, Jesse Ferguson, is a, a scientist, I guess, and a believer. He has a cross on. Uh, and then once they are told by Lisa about this information in the book about Jesus being an alien and the church participated in like a big cover up and said that evil is something that's within people rather than evil being like this separate entity. And Calder ends up taking that cross off. And the priest also seems to completely lose his faith. But even though both of them are disillusioned by the fact that their, you know, religions have kind of been created by human BS. They both are still kind of stuck in their mindsets. Um, the priest prays, uh, even though he is at the point where he doesn't even know what he believes anymore. He has he, no idea. He yeah. does pray for deliverance from this. And when, you know, he's able to break the mirror and leave, you know, Satan stranded he does feel like that's an answered prayer and it does something to restore his faith. 
Um, Calder is attacked physically and, you know, peed on by Satan, (laughs) if we want to characterize it that way. Right. And yet, unlike everybody else who kind of seems to have an instant change, Calder seems to retain himself, at least to some extent. Um, He's been infected, but he's like going upstairs singing Amazing Grace, and then he kills himself, like as if he's trying to prevent himself from being taken over. Um, Little does he know that death will not stop Satan, uh, and he's going to keep being, you know... Uh, I don't know if he dies or he doesn't die. His, they have this bandage over his throat. But after this point, he does seem to lose who he is. But he seems to still go back and forth. He has like this laughing and crying all happening at the same time. And, you know, it, it seems really difficult to him. So I thought that was interesting. We also then have all the scientists who are like... They, they are getting worked up because they're used to being able to prove things, right? They are used to saying, you know, this is my hypothesis and I can do this and prove that my hypothesis is correct. This situation is something they've never encountered before because it is, like, unprovable. And Brian Marsh and Walter both seem to have a hugely problematic time with this. I think Victor Wong's character... Birak seems to have an easier time kind of resolving things within his mind because he kind of is more accepting of uncertainty. But he also has that fantastic line when he's talking to Donald Pleasance, which is nobody wants to hear this bullshit. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's just like that. That's really it. No one wants to dig through everything. They, they it's you know when your entire world is not what you think it is when everything that you believed in and you know brian marsh really yeah and walter but brian marsh for me it stood out even more oh it did for sure you know because he just was like there's something growing in the canister there's something happening here there was nothing you know mathematically that can prove this there's nothing about this that makes sense and then barack you know gives him a quote from the bible you know and it's just like what the fuck is this? You know, <laughs> know, it's just like you don't know what's going on. It's like your car doesn't run and somebody gives you a banana. <laughs> like it just didn't it doesn't make any sense to That's him. That's exactly what it's like because yeah, he says, "Look, this is prebiotic fluid and it's forming into, you know, a, a conscious thing, you know. And that isn't possible. You can't make life out of a not life." And he doesn't see how that can be happening. Because it it flouts every law of science. It's like the basic principle of matter that we all know, if you've even taken like science up to junior high, is that matter cannot be created or destroyed, only changed in form. So you shouldn't be able to create it from nothing. And that's what he sees happening. And well, and you also have Susan, our radiologist, who like has this x-ray of the canister. And when you look at it, you know, if you pause the movie, I mean, maybe we're just, we're really fishing here, but it really looks like there is a face in a hood in the canister if you look at the x-ray, if you just kind of yeah. see the outline of it. I totally see it, and it's got to be there for a reason. You know, John Carpenter 
I don't think does something for not a reason. Right. Like, why would they show us the x-ray if there wasn't some significance? Everything in this film has, you know, some real purpose to it. Yeah. I mean, even the, 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 you know, crazier scenes, like when you have Peter Jason, right? He's got the cigarette in his mouth and he's kind of getting his late night snack and he's, you know, making all those trumpet sounds with his mouth. Also, we should say this is the first outing for Peter Jason in a John Carpenter film. He became a John Carpenter regular after this. Yes. He played Leahy in this film. He is a professor of... Biochemistry, I believe. Yeah. I mean, that's totally wild. I mean, Peter Jason, you know, I enjoy him in everything. You know, I'm not sure where he's from. I didn't look it up on IMDb, but he's got this really gregarious, almost Midwestern, you know, kind of feel. Like, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, he just seems like a really friendly guy, but not maybe a scientist. No, so it's (laughs) it's really fun. It's really fun because the vibe you get in this film is you have Etchinson, who is his assistant, who goes outside and is murdered by Alice Cooper. You get the vibe that... You know, his, his basically his TA is doing all of his work, yeah. and he doesn't really quite know, <laughs> you know, what his job is. It makes you think about like Venkman and Ghostbusters. <laughs> it's like that kind of vibe. So he's coming out, you know, of the church. He's getting his snack. He's making these trumpet sounds with his mouth, and he goes by Walter Dennis Dunn. And Walter is actually watching television. He's got like this pizza in front of him. And you feel like maybe he's trying to wind down. And Tom and Jerry is on. And you think, oh, okay, this should be fine. Well, not really. What do you see? You see Tom in a house fall through a hole in the floor all the way to hell into a boiling cauldron that Devil Bulldog is next to, you know, so a representative of Satan. He has a pitchfork. He's holding Tom in this boiling cauldron as Tom fights to escape. This is a terrifying clip, and this is very much what they have happening here. They fell right into it. They they weren't ready for this. I mean, we're dealing with basically, you know, students. We do have some adults, but the bulk of the team, you know, it, it seemed to be undergrad and graduate students. Yeah. So it, it's it's not like, you know, we have these seasoned, hardened people that we see. Like, for instance, when you look at John Carpenter's Vampires, you know, we have a team there that is familiar with the dark side. They know what all these things are and they're ready for it. These people essentially are babes in the woods. Yeah. And we also just have... You know, there, there's just so much manipulation in this film of the, the smaller creatures. From the beginning of the film, we see ants. Ants are everywhere. We see Barack coming to the university, and he looks up at this weird kind of eclipse sun-moon deal in the sky, and then we see this massive mound of ants. We also see Brian Marsh in his apartment, and he's doing his card tricks, and he's watching television, and he's watching this special on this supernova that, you know, has traveled so fast, and now it's like the light from that is reaching Earth. Yeah, after like 200,000 years. Yeah, it's crazy. And And it also makes you think, oh, you know, if Jesus is this human-like person, or I don't know what do you want to say, this human-like being 
from like a alien ancestry, you know, could that be him? You know, it's like, what do we see in the thing? What we see at the thing, we see the spaceship and we see the thing kind of come down. There's got to be a way like Superman, right? Superman. He took the rocket ship. He ended up here. Or did they just use a wormhole or come through a mirror? You know, because we have that in this movie too. Like, I mean, it's just, it's like, there's a million questions. There are just so many. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know where to begin and end. And also with the possessions, okay? Most of the people you see murdered, you know, and, and then, you know, they take over. Or you see the fluid go from a possessed mouth into another possessed mouth, you know. Or in some cases, you see it come, like, straight from the canister, you know, taking hits from the bong, you know. <laughs> um, so it's like y y you see that. But it's not like anything is the same. As Georgia mentioned, everyone that's possessed is different. Everyone has a different reaction to what's going on. Well, we have Frank Wyndham and Walter who also have this issue with this loss of their faith in science. Because uh, <laughs> Walter is just kind of rejecting the entirety of what's happening. Um, you know, he hears this translation from this book and he just is like, no, I give up on this. This is not real. He just wants to leave. And he says, <laughs> your favorite line. Oh, yeah. He goes, look, am I crazy or are we just stroking ourselves heavily here? <laughs> <laughs> like he can't even believe that they're entertaining this notion because it's too far out of the realm of possibility for him and the he's very similar to this character frank um who is another one of the biochemistry team um and he there's a great scene with frank where he's talking to people outside and he <laughs> yells out you know he's like this is you, you know this is caca yeah he just he gives up on it too he can't he just thinks they're wasting their time and uh the funny thing with him is that he's almost instantly taken out by this force um, occupying the body of the homeless bag lady who we saw earlier. She, he's, this is a beautiful looking scene. Um, it's this really widescreen uh, view of this perfectly lit kind of parking lot um, where the three guys are talking. The other two leave and it's just Frank left out there. And this homeless lady comes at him and stabs him and kills him with this half a pair of garden shears, yeah. I guess. And uh, he then is possessed after this point um, by the Satan force. And it's not him anymore. It's just using his skin. It's like a million beetles in a body, you know, filling up a suit to make it look like a human form. And the other, the rest of the team sees him outside and he kind of gives this like dire message um, from Satan. It's an extremely effective, creepy scene. It also has one of the coolest uh, shots to me and John Carpenter actually really is proud of it too. <laughs> Where, you know, we see, like, the bag lady holding the shear, like, and they wanted to make it look like she was running at them. But in order to do that, they had the arm with the shear stationary while a truck with this brick wall background drove quickly by. 
to give this illusion of great speed. Um, and then there was also a really funny kind of behind the scenes with the actor talking about the scene and saying that he kind of had to pull the knife into himself uh, because the the actor, the, the woman who played the bag lady, was older and not like super strong and, you know, stabbing him. So he kind of had to help her out a little with that. But what you have in that scene, too, which is just so ominous, is, again, we talked about green being a color. And when Frank is out in that parking lot, we can see, you know, the desolation around him. We can see the homeless. Like, they have, like, a wall perimeter around him. They're staring him down. But in the background of Frank, you know, on this house, there's, like, this green light. And, you know, green, as we said in this, is really the symbol of danger. You know, so then we, we have you know, the, the lady kill him, which is, which is so terrifying because yeah. yeah, just seeing this arm in the frame with, with these scary shears pointed down and the actual stabbing when Frank is stabbed really puts you again in mind of Michael Myers and Halloween, Norman Bates and psycho. It's a very sharp angle. It, it, it's just, it's very violent. I mean, a stabbing is always violent, but they, they do an excellent job with it. Yeah. And particularly if the actor was, <laughs> You know, stabbing himself, um, you know, as they went through. So Robert Grasmere, who plays Frank Wyndham, was actually a visual effects supervisor on the film. And uh, they were in the trailer somewhere talking with John Carpenter about, you know, how the movie is going, how they want to plan things out. John Carpenter actually asked Robert Grasmere if he had any acting experience. And, and Robert Grasmere thought it was a joke. He's like, oh, yeah, you know, I did a play in high school or, yeah. or whatever. And, you know, the way it actually turns out is that, you know, John Carpenter cast him in the film. You know, he's absolutely perfect. So it's like he's got he's got like double duty. Um, what what's very neat about it is there are so many bugs in this scene with him, and he actually had a stunt double, and he was thrilled. So all of these big like bug covering scenes weren't him. He only had one bug on him at one point, and it's on his face. It's just for this this one brief shot. That's still too many bugs on you. <laughs> For me, I would not have been very happy about that. Well, it's pretty scary stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, it's a, but his death, you know, him again saying he doesn't want to be in the church. Anyone that wants to leave for whatever reason, he's just like, these people are nuts. I'm out of here. You're not leaving. And really what it's like is you have to choose a side in this film. You're with, you know, the scientists or you're with the devil. You don't have a choice. If you don't want to be involved in the game for some reason, if you want to leave this this battlefield, you're going to die. You know, yeah. you're you're done. And he becomes, you know, this voice box of Satan, terrifying. And then almost in like a Beetlejuice type of deconstruction, um, you know, his head pops off. These bugs come out, and his body just slowly collapses like a level at a time. You know, his hand comes out, all these bugs come out, and it, it, it's just like it's, it makes you think of Beetlejuice. It's really terrifying. It's a really effective, like, gag. Oh, it is. Set it up. Well, and they also have, you know, we have Susan, who's up on the balcony, 
you know, and she is possessed at this point, and she's looking down at this scene. So Susan, when we see her, Susan, the radiologist, she's got these glasses on, and she seems nice and kind of conservative. But in this kind of like 80s, like 90s makeover, once she becomes a friend of Satan, the glasses are gone, <laughs> you know, that hair seems a little more puffed out. Really, you know, really scary. Yeah, uh, and she's kind of the first one that gets possessed and kind of becomes, you know, the instrument of everyone else um, becoming possessed. So with this idea that everyone loses their faith, like in whatever it is that they have faith in <laughs> over yeah. the course of the movie, when the apocalypse is averted in the end, everybody kind of retreats back to their original camp, you know, like... The people who were science at the beginning, even if they had trouble accepting what was happening, they go back to the science in the end. Victor Wong as Birok is kind of like, yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> and then at the same time, the priest, like I had said before, he kind of goes back to his religion and feels like, you know, they were helped by God. The one exception, I would say, is Brian Marsh. Um, because he's not only experienced the situation, but he's also lost Catherine in the process when they were just starting to develop this relationship. Marsh is kind of changed in a way that he can't revert. Um, and I think that that becomes very interesting with seeing him have that dream at the end um, he has the dream again and again you have to question is this a shared dream are people still having this dream is it just marsh having this dream because of what he's been through and the last scene that we see is actually him about to touch the mirror in his room as if to see if he can go through it or not. And it cuts to black right before he makes contact. You know, so we don't know, does he stick his hand and just touch his mirror? Or does he go through um, this mirror as another kind of wormhole or portal to the mirror universe? Or whatever it is that we're supposed to think about that. Well, and this is also in that same scene, right on the heels of him waking up, you know, from this dream where Catherine looks like she is, you know, the anti-God herself. And, you know, he wakes up in bed, looks over, and it looks like she is in bed next to him, but all burnt and crazy, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. like like Kelly was earlier. Right, like when she was you know, Satan's vessel. So it's, it's very creepy. And then it's like, he wakes up and it's like, Oh, okay. That part was a dream. And then he sees her again. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it, these double takes really keep you on the edge of your toes in terms of what is happening in this movie. Well, before we move on, um, I did want to just mention the, the shooting uh, of the mirror scenes was done by Mercury. So they actually had this pool of mercury that they would have people like put their hand into, which is highly dangerous, but they did it anyway. Um, and then on the other side, like when people had made it through the mirror, that was shot in just kind of a swimming pool. 
and seeing somebody like break through the surface. Yeah, with with the mercury shot, there is a person that puts two of their fingers through. And yeah, that, that looks like that's a real person putting two of their fingers through. And then when we actually have later with the hands going through the larger mirror, um, we actually have, you know, Kelly's hand is so burnt at that point. I think it's they said it was like a, a prosthetic. Yeah, and, and then while well, they chop off the hand too mm -hmm. this is when the priest like comes out with this axe and like just chops the arm off and then she immediately grows another arm yeah and he like beheads her and then she just puts her head back on there is no stopping her that nah. well at that point when we're expecting the king of darkness to show up tensions are very high to say the least yeah and she actually takes the priest and kind of pins him behind a water heater or some other like practical object at the time you know i always was like well why didn't she murder him It'd be very simple for her to do so but the idea that that i have is that she wants this priest to behold the full horror of the king of darkness because kelly is pulling him through yeah and we begin to see like his claw hand and it looks like this son of a bitch is going to be terrifying this looks like it's on par with tim curry as darkness and legend which is absolutely horrifying yes and yeah that's exactly what's happening like he's coming through and I kind of, part of me wishes that we had, like, the payoff of him actually making it oh, yeah. more than just the arm. But if that happened, then we wouldn't have been able to avert the apocalypse or delay it, whichever we decide actually happened here. Well, it's very scary. I mean, it's, I, I want to see it, too. You want to have that moment. You want to have that reveal. You want to have this massive fight. But you probably don't have the budget for it. No, you probably <laughs> don't have the budget. And also, you wonder... Who would be strong enough to kill this creature? They can't kill yeah. Satan. Killing Satan's father, I imagine, you know, would be a bit more difficult. Yeah, neither one of these things are going to be easily achieved. No, and also the way that they did it in this film gave a great opportunity for Catherine to sacrifice herself to save everyone. Yeah. To go back to, to the Mercury piece that you were talking about again, um, on the other side, yes, they, they were in a swimming pool, but it was like a darkened swimming pool. So when the two ladies, like, jumped in, they said it was pretty scary because they went into a swimming pool and they couldn't see anything at all. And I just think about that. Like, think about how horrifying that would be if you were just in this liquid, in this, this complete darkness. I would be so scared. I would think maybe I did go to hell, yeah. you know, honestly. So it's... It's a very well done sequence. And to have, you know, uh, the King of Darkness, you know, in this kind of fluid. I mean, we always think of, you know, hell as fire. We never think of hell as water. So it's like, again, this spin. But, you know, we have this canister with this green liquid, right? And that is Satan. So I maybe we're trying to say here that, you know, Satan is liquid. There are things that the church told us incorrectly. Maybe there are differences. Maybe, you know, the devil lives in the water. You know, maybe he's in the Marianas Trench. I have no idea. You know what I mean? <laughs> but it's it's just something that I really like how they throw us for such a major loop 
So what's your idea about the apocalypse here? Do you think it was uh, completely averted? Or do you think it's just been delayed? And do you think that Marsh's dream is just his mind? Or do you think it is actually real? I think that the apocalypse has simply been postponed. I don't think anything has been stopped. They destroyed the portal that the King of Darkness was going to come through. And the Prince of Darkness is in there as well. But these are both very powerful forces. And I feel like, once again, they will find a way. They will find another portal. They do have Catherine now. And it does feel like Catherine is going to be their vessel and is going to go back. And as I talked about, you know, it would be very easy if they actually had to talk to her. You know, if there was any type of free will to, to manipulate her into saying, you know, these people abandon you when you tried to save them. Mm. You know, and again, maybe, you know, Catherine is a strong enough person to say, I made the sacrifice. I'm glad I made this sacrifice. But if you're alone in hell, okay, with Satan and Satan's father, you know, I, I don't know that you would be able to hold out, you know, against whatever whatever came your way. Well, I think that's a really interesting point. And I have to be honest that I didn't really have an opinion when I just asked you this question. But now based on what you said, I think that it was definitely just averted and that the devil and his pop are going to use Catherine to have Brian open a portal. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. And you know what? Because I don't think Brian could ever let this go. No, he can't. And so him having the dream is them reaching out to him to start that process. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's... Yeah, that's what I think. If I was going to make a sequel to this movie, that's where, you know, my way in would be. Well, I think that that's brilliant. I just don't think that Brian Marsh could ever let this go because Catherine has such a hold on him. And again, we see that at the very beginning of the film. You know, we also do have this alternate television version of this film, which I'll just talk about very quickly, which actually shows at one point Brian sleeping. So it can kind of plant this seed in your head that, you know, maybe the whole thing is Brian's dream. Okay, maybe it is Brian's dream. Maybe it's like a prophetic dream. Mm -hmm. Because I just feel like Brian, his demeanor, everything about him, it, it's very coincidental, in my opinion, also, that Brian Marsh has just transferred to this school. Yeah. He has just come here in time for this to happen. The fates conspiring to bring all of these things together at exactly the right time. Yeah, and, and you have it. And it's like people feel that there's evil in the air. You know, they can see it everywhere that, that they go. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic film. The battle is far from over. We want to see what happens in the future. I want to see the people with their devices, you know, so that they can talk back to people you know, like 12 years in the past or, or more. Yeah. You know, it's, I, that's, that's what I want to see. I want to see where we go with this because yeah. this really is brains versus brawn. Yeah. I mean, and this, the, these questions that this movie asks 
are like some of the most complicated questions that you can ask. Yes. I mean, it, it's about the actual nature of what is real, you know, and it's something that he, uh, Carpenter, goes on to explore again in In the Mouth of Madness. We're looking at reality. We're questioning, is it static? Is it something that can be defined? Is it dynamic? Can it be changed from moment to moment? In Mouth of Madness, we, we look and see, can it be created? Yes. You know, can reality be created out of nothing? Um, Prince of Darkness, I believe, shows that there is a reality, but that it can be so difficult to define it or prove it, and so many variables can change our perception, prove us wrong, um, make us question ourselves, that outside forces can manipulate reality in a certain way. I think that, you know, it, it's, it's like it's there, but it's so impossible to define that it's, it's hard to talk about. And I hope that we've done this movie justice. It's 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 hard to say whether it's possible for us to have a good conversation about this. <laughs> we were talking when we were trying to make notes on this, and it's almost like you're writing a thesis. Yes. You know, we're we're not just having our normal fun discussion about a movie. We're like digging into these really crazy difficult topics. Um, but I think it's. I think it's a brilliant movie that could have gone on and we could have explored it even more. I don't think that it was possible to explore these deep ideas in like an hour and a half film. Um, but I think Carpenter did a hell of a job trying. Yes. And I've never seen anyone else even con consider tackling this. In that kind of a time frame. Um, you know, we have the quantum mechanics explored in other movies more recently, like Interstellar, Ant-Man. Um, but it certainly isn't condensed into this small of a, of a package. And it doesn't bring in the religion aspect, which is a whole nother animal. Yeah. You know, I, I just think that he was trying to wrestle something very large and he did a heck of a job with that um i'd like to move on to in the mouth of madness now again we have another movie about reality um in this case the reality is kind of open to being unwritten and rewritten based on the power of a creator in this case the creator is sutter kane who is a writer and he was granted this power both by the old ones, which are these Lovecraftian, you know, space creatures who can travel across space and time and have kind of unlimited power. And then also society as a whole, who's given so much power to Sutter Kane by reading his books or watching his films. Um, and... Through both of those sources, Sutter Kane kind of gr is granted the power to make and unmake people, places, things. Um, this is a really fun and interesting movie. 
that I really responded to from an early age. Like when this came out in 1995, I wanted to see this so much that I just went by myself because uh-huh. nobody went with me. And the crazy and awesome thing is I was the only person in the theater too. Um, sorry for John Carpenter, because that probably means he didn't make a lot of money. But <laughs> the funny thing is that this movie ends with John Trent, played by Sam Neill, in a movie theater alone, kind of descending into insanity. Um, and fortunately, I managed to not descend into insanity when I saw the film. Um, but it is like the first movie I remember going to by myself, because I just had to see it. I just was so interested in this idea of Sutter Kane, who's kind of the Stephen King style writer, um, but also kind of H.P. Lovecraft. And it's like a horror movie that is dealing with like this old ones idea. And again, really cool. Um, it's Lovecraftian, but it's also somehow mixed with detective stories and also, Carpenter's trying to do, like, a His Girl Friday thing with the relationship between John Trent and Linda Stiles, who's this book editor um, who works with Sutter Kane. The P.I. kind of story has Sam Neill as an insurance investigator, but he acts much more like this Humphrey Bogart-style kind of P.I. He even is, like, tugging on his ear Um, which he was instructed to do by John Carpenter, to be more like this Humphrey Bogart character. Or he kind of reminds you of Jake Giddes from Chinatown um, when he's kind of uncovering this adultery thing with uh, Peter Jason again. Yeah. Yeah, when he's handing him the photographs, it's, and again, it's like the reason that Peter Jason is caught is because he is not faithful to his partner. And that's, that's the whole reason he's cheating. What I love the most about In the Mouth of Madness is the opening. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, the opening is fantastic. So you have these opening credits, and you see a book being printed on a printing press. Now, the music in this film is fantastic, and that's nothing uncommon in a John Carpenter film. Um, he actually has a new person that he's working with in this film, and that person is named Jim Lang. And the music is in time with this printing press printing. And the angles that Gary B. Kibbe is able to get on it make this printing press terrifying. You actually feel like this is some type of uh, torture device. This is some type of weapon of war. This is a very scary thing. And it's actually showing you the creation of the written word. And it's letting you know that, you know, words, in fact, can be weapons. We are creating the monster of this film right at the beginning. So it's very similar to Frankenstein. But instead of being in human form, we actually have it in book form. It also calls back to Christine. Um, And John Carpenter's version of Christine, the very opening of the film, is this evil possessed car, Christine, on the line being created and she actually murders two of the workers on those auto construction line this is like setting us up with the villain from the beginning but again the villain is a book the villain is the words and Sutter Kane doesn't actually show up in the film until much much later 
all of the trouble that happens in this film is from this book, from people reading this book. Because when people read it, they go mad. You, you know, <laughs> it's like you find out later in the film, which we'll get to, that Sutter Kane is like a godlike character because he can write and rewrite at will and he can make anyone do anything with the power of his pen or his typewriter. So the madness in this is actually presented as kind of a disease of perception. Um, Linda Stiles is talking to John Trent when they're headed in to try to find Hobbs End. And she says, reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places. If the insane were to become the majority, you would find yourself locked in a padded cell wondering what happened to the world. That's actually already happened in this movie because the opening of the movie is John Trent in a straight jacket being imprisoned in this really stylized mental hospital um, because he has tried to tell people that Sutter Kane is taking over the world and bringing back these ancient gods to take over and he kills someone <laughs> and so they put him into this mental institution because they think he's lost his mind earlier you know not earlier in the film but earlier in his story he has experienced this this situation and, and told linda that would never happen to me <laughs> i would never you know lose my grip on reality um, and the fact is he didn't lose his grip on reality but his reality has become something that is madness. It's it's super interesting. Um, and Julie Carmen, who plays Linda Stiles, actually is a psychotherapist <laughs> in real life as well as an actress. She's like a licensed psychotherapist. And so for her, like the whole uh, exploration of madness is really what made her interested in this movie. And I thought that was that was really cool to have cast somebody who has expertise in that field. You know, but reality is a recurring theme in this that people keep talking about. They have this conversation in the car. John Tran at one point says, this is not reality. Simon, uh, who's played by Wilhelm von Homburg, is a former wrestler. And also, you may recognize him as Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. Um, he says, reality is not what it used to be. And I believe that's right before he shoots his head off. Yeah, he actually, uh, yeah, he has a shotgun under his chin and he blows his brains out and Sam Neill tries to stop him. Yeah. You know, the film does a, a fantastic job of showing this character, John Trent, Sam Neill, descending into madness. Because, you know, when we start off this film, you know, it's interesting because we just came off of Prince of Darkness and we talked about believing in faith. You need to trust in faith. We have this character of John Trent who believes in nothing. He doesn't believe in anyone, literally. His entire job is to disprove what other people are saying. And he loves his job because he said the more difficult, you know, the opponent is that he needs to disprove, the more fun it is because he enjoys the challenge. So everything in this is just a game to him. You know, we have a very cynical character. This is a person that just doesn't seem to really have any love in his life, but he doesn't want it. You know, it isn't like the guy's unhappy. He's just like a person that dissects everything 
destroys everything. He's the guy that likes to piss in your cereal for a living. You know, that's the best way to explain John Trent. So as we go through this journey with this character, you know, you do become somewhat sympathetic to him. But when you look at, at the bigger picture, you really don't mind this guy going down the hole because he really wasn't doing anything to help anyone. I mean, I guess he was helping, you know, the insurance company and, and saving him some money. And, you know, I, I guess stopping people from paying fraudulent claims is uh, something of a noble pursuit. But to me, I don't feel that he really cares about that. I think he cares about being able to do what he enjoys. He likes to get the aha. Exactly. He, you know, he likes to catch people. Yeah. You know, I don't know that I find him completely unsympathetic either. Um, I, I don't really think that anybody in this movie is particularly super likable. No. I mean, we have Sutter Kane who, you know, sacrifices the world for power, you know. <laughs> Uh, we have uh, Linda Stiles, who is just odd. I mean, she works as an editor with Sutter Kane, but I'm really not sure like what her whole deal is. You know, she she talks to to Trent and goes on this trip with him and 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 everything, but I don't really get a sense of her. Her boss is played by Charlton Heston. Yeah. Um, as Harglow, he's kind of the head of this publishing company. And his whole deal was just selling books. Like, that's all he really cares about. Exactly. Um, and he's, you know, Heston does a good job. But it's not like a fleshed out or likable character. Um, we have this John Glover psychiatrist. John Glover's one of my favorites. Anytime I see him, I'm like, okay. You know, again, we have a pretty interesting connection because John Carpenter worked with Keith Gordon and Christine. You know, he played Arnie, the lead. And we also have John Glover, and John Glover was actually an actor in the film adaptation of the book The Chocolate War, which was directed by Keith Gordon. Interesting. Yeah, and, you know, John Glover is a fantastic actor. We've talked about him before. He's in Scrooged. He has this wonderful, wonderful way of playing the most unlikable characters and making them endlessly interesting. Yeah, and in this, I feel that He's playing this psychiatrist as a kind of almost like Renfield role from Dracula. You know, in Dracula, John Seward is actually the person who works at the mental institution. And Renfield is a patient there. But (laughs) John Glover's kind of mannerisms are kind of eccentric and weird and offbeat. And you and I both kind of independently had this idea of him as Renfield. And then discussed it with each other at a later time. Um, I really like that. It's a small part, but it, it really sets the stage for this yes. movie. Because you understand early on that this is weird. And that what's happening is not normal. And I just, I think it's it's really well done. This location of this mental institution also is excellent um it's actually a water treatment plant but it has this real art deco kind of style that it's built in it looks awesome and then on the inside of the building they were actually able to shoot as well and it kind of has like this long hallway that's lit by skylighting uh, from above Um, and they brought in a lot of natural light 
Um, by the way, sidebar, if you get the Scream Factory version of this disc, there is an amazing commentary <laughs> with Gary Kibbe and John Carpenter. And Kibbe teaches you uh, everything you need to know about film lighting. It's incredible. In this, in this commentary. I have literally never heard a commentary that I liked more. Um, just because I am a super lighting nerd and cinematography nerd. And it was unbelievable to hear how amazing he, he talked about how this was lit. So go check that out, please. I don't think you'll be disappointed. He also goes through the lenses that he used. He has a wonderful memory of this production. Yeah. So he's able to get down to the fine details. It's interesting because John Carpenter basically ends up interviewing him, yeah. you know, about, you know, how he works with light. And it's great. It's so much fun just to have, you know, these two professionals just talking with each other. And John Carpenter has great admiration for cinematographers because he said he tried to learn this stuff when he was at USC and he's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, you <laughs> know, it was math. He yeah. didn't want to do the math. I could relate, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's so nice to hear these two complimentary people who were both, you know, on the same level of talent and they just give so much. It's wonderful because you're just like, you were so awesome. People pay a lot of money to go to film school. Yeah. You know, and this is somebody, you know, on the front lines just saying, hey, you bought the movie. Let me lay it all out for you. And it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. One of the best things, you know, I've ever seen. One thing I do want to jump back to with what you said is I want to talk about, you know, we do have this Renfield character that we see in John Glover, but then we also see David Warner. Mm -hmm. Now, David Warner at this time for me in this film, I was like, Oh my God, is this Dracula? You know, is this the head bad guy? Mm -hmm. David Warner again, to tie back into Terry Gilliam played a terrifying villain in time bandits. Yes. And so that has never left my memory. So it's like, okay, we have, you know, David Warner who is terrifying. We also have John Glover who is terrifying and they seem to be teamed up, you know, in this hospital and you just don't know where it's going to go. I mean, the movie is really interesting in that, you know, David Warner doesn't really turn out to be the, this big guy no. in, in the grand scheme of things, nor does John Glover. No, they really are only in this, this small part, but they are really important because they kind of establish that John Trent is nuts at the beginning of the movie that like yeah. okay you know this guy's crazy he's lost his mind but when david warner comes in to talk to him he doesn't really give away in my opinion whether we're supposed to think that the insanity is the cause of what he's done or if the world is actually changing because what happens is that Trent says to David Warner's character, like, oh, you see these changes happening, right? Like, all these things are happening. And then later on, Trent escapes the hospital, and we see that the world has changed. But I don't know that it's really telegraphed in that scene. 
Um, they don't really care if the world is changing. They care that he's like axe murdered some dude in the street. Yeah, I mean, David Warner, again, it's just like you have, you know, the, this psychiatrist that comes in and he's basically doing a session with Sam Neill, who has gone completely over the edge. He has taken a black crayon. He's covered himself with crosses. He's covered his room with crosses. You just don't think anything is going to be okay. And then, yeah, he, he does get out. I mean... Yeah, he's basically like, yeah, that's a nice touch. You know, that might make people think you're crazy, you know, but it's not going to get you out because, you know, of what you did. Um, but, you know, then John Trent goes on and is like, do you see everything changing? And again, it's back to like this reality. Is John Trent experiencing reality or is he having a break from reality? Um, and we, we kind of are left with that question until later. Um, we, we flash back in time and see what brought him to this point. But it's like, does anybody else experience this? Or is this just him experiencing it? Well, it's something that we see in all three films of this Apocalypse trilogy. It's something that I speculated on in the Thing episode, that when you have McCready and Childs left, that if Childs is in fact the Thing, or even McCready, if you want to say that, but I, I think it's Childs, um, you know, Childs would just kind of hang out. And he would want the rescue so that he could get back to the mainland. Yeah. And if McCready tried to tell anyone about this thing and about how Childs was the thing, they would put him in a mental institution as Childs took over the world. Yeah. You know, we also have, you know, Prince of Darkness. We have, you know, Satan and Satan's father possibly coming to dinner. <laughs> and, you know you need to be able to empirically prove that to the people of the world. And if you cannot empirically prove that, then no one is going to listen to you and the entire world is destroyed. So yeah. it, it has to do with, you know, is it something that you can prove? And with Sam Neill, with John Trent, he has absolutely nothing he can prove. It's the worst situation of anyone because Sutter Kane just keeps rewriting everything. Yeah, he keeps changing the norm. So whatever, you know, John Trent goes out and says, he can't prove because it's already been unwritten. It's like he's the only person that knows what's going on. This kind of is Hitchcockian again. We've seen John Carpenter loving Hitchcock over and over through these last four weeks. And I think we have that again because there's always this, thing in Hitchcock where this main character guy like understands what's really going on but he's like alone against the world yes and that's definitely what we have with John Trent he's alone against the world because whatever he says and does Sutter Kane can change down to the level of even Linda Stiles's existence you know he goes back to talk to Charlton Heston's character at the end, and he's trying to prevent this book in the Mouth of Madness from being published. And uh, when he's talking to Harglow, Harglow is telling him, this person that you say I sent with you, I, we don't have a person like that working here. And Trent then says, well, oh, because she's been written out. 
And to me, that's almost like a part where I have to wonder, like, is he just crazy or not? I thought he was crazy then. I thought because we've been, you know, we've been with him on this journey. We've, you know, and now we're like, wait, is this woman even real? Like, <laughs> what happened? And we find out that the book has already been published, so there's no stopping it. It's been published months ago, and things are already starting to change, and that the movie is about to come out. Yeah, the movie's coming out, and when the movie comes out, that's when the world totally goes tilt. You know, and that, that's like, obviously, a social commentary on people not reading. People just go into the movies. <laughs> And again, a lot of people said Sutter Kane was like a Stephen King character. And how many film adaptations do we have of Stephen King? Yeah. Even John Carpenter himself directed right. an adaptation of Stephen King. Yeah, I mean, when the book comes out, there's a certain pop portion of the population that is affected. But once the movie comes out, that just takes care of everyone. It's right there. Well, in the scene that he has with Harglow... It's great that Charlton Heston is in this film because John Carpenter, huge fan of Touch of Evil, which Charlton Heston was in with Janet Leigh, mm -hmm. you know. And we also have Charlton Heston was in the film Soylent Green, where he uncovers that Soylent Green is people. Yeah. And he's trying to tell everyone this information. So it's like, you know, Charlton Heston has played a similar character in the past, so he understands that. But he is the hardline Harglow, you know, just saying, you know, this is how it is. It isn't a big deal. I love that John Trent says, well, have you read the book? <laughs> and Harglow goes, yeah, I don't have the stomach for Sutter Kane. <laughs> he just doesn't care. But does he see the movie? That's <laughs> That is know. a good question. Right. He doesn't care as long as he's cashing checks. Yeah. But, you know, he's probably we can cash in checks much longer if the world is going to end. So he might start to care at some point soon. <laughs> well, we also have like this slow degradation of everyone that we see in this film. And, you know, it, it has a physical manifestation with the people at Hobbs End. Yes. And we should mention that Hobbs End, Hobbs was a name for the devil, correct? Yes. Many of uh, the different things that are going on here are straight out of Lovecraft. I mean, the name of the movie is uh, In the Mouth of Madness. There's a book by Lovecraft called At the Mountains of Madness, which we have started listening to and haven't completed. Um, if you haven't read Lovecraft, it is kind of stunning to go back and read it and see how much it has influenced pop culture in, yes. in the horror and sci-fi fiction category in particular. Um because Carpenter is is digging in with it here. Um, he also has... Well, the funny thing we noticed was At the Mountains of Madness actually has a lot in common with The Thing. Yes. Um, and, in fact, I would suggest that it strongly influenced the first... The original Thing movie, The Thing from Another World. And also, you know, the, the story that... Uh, that... And that was adapted into that movie um, by Campbell or Don A. Stewart. It was the pen name. So if, Who goes there. Yeah, who goes there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's, it's really interesting to me to see how much H.P. Lovecraft's fiction reaches out to us today through other writers like Stephen King, for example. He has a, a story called Crouch End 
which deals with like these um, eldritch horror old ones um, and it it's just kind of like the genesis of many of our common ideas and tropes and things that we read and and look at in horror today um, so I, th I think that is just a really interesting thing and Hobbs End itself is kind of like this little New England town um, Stephen King is from Maine um, H.P. Lovecraft I believe is from like Rhode Island or something so we have like these people um, from the Northeast uh, who kind of influenced this little Hobbs End town um, and it is like a creepy little New England town now it was uh, played by a town in Canada called Unionville. Um, and I love, I mentioned briefly the location with the sewage treatment plant, um, but there's a lot of cool locations in this. They did shoot this in Canada. And there are several buildings that are fabulous looking, including that treatment plant and also this church that's in the movie, it's the Black Church in uh reality it's the slovak church um, of the transfiguration that is uh, near that same little town unionville which also is a cute little town with all these storefronts and it's all quaint and stuff but when styles and trent arrive there it's like deserted and creepy and weird and then we have like this dog running around the corner in slow-mo, followed by these weird children. Terrifying children. <laughs> yeah, so um, there's a lot of weird shit going on. Yeah. Hobbs End is a bizarre place. And it's it's this creation of Sutter Kane where he sets all of his stories. And it's discovered by uh, John Trent by cutting out all these book covers and gluing them together and realizing that those book covers make up like a map of New Hampshire with like this location of Hobbs End and that's where Styles and Trent go to look for it because it's not any on any map um, but it actually does end up being a place and we later I think kind of put together that it's a place that Sutter Kane has written into existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the town is terrifying. You do see the children, you do see this dog, and then the next time you see the dog, it's missing a leg, and then, like, the children have these, like, crazy scary teeth and blood on their faces. You know, he also did the film Village of the Damned, which was about very scary children. Yeah. And so it, it seems to be running over familiar ground, yeah. you know, with this. And again, it also brings you back to... You know, the fog and Halloween and that it's this very quaint location. It's this very nice location. But again, we're dealing with everything being out in the open. I don't feel that there's anything that's really hidden. I mean, maybe you could, you know, put uh, a case out there that Mrs. Pickman is an overt. I feel like Mrs. Pickman is terrifying and you can tell that there's something off with her. The entire mood of Hobbs End feels like Silent Hill, the video mm, game. That's a good point. Yeah, it's just like survival horror. Everything is off. And if you don't play these type of video games, what happens is you go into this very foggy, misty town. 
It's like this old mining town that's burnt out. And you talk to people that just don't seem okay. They look very pale. You know, they say cryptic things. You can't really tell if they're real or if they're ghosts. You know that there is something very evil happening in the town. Um, it, and you just, in this place, you see that. I mean, the bed and breakfast that they stay at is run by a woman by the name of Mrs. Pickman, and she seems very normal at first. And you're like, oh, okay, this is fine. There's a painting, you know, in the lobby that every time that you look at it, it changes. Yeah, it was really creepy. Right. It seemed like this nice kind of picture, people out in a picnic kind of by a lake. And then you would see the people turning and their faces look distorted, and you just felt like, okay, something very bad is happening here. <laughs> Mrs. Pickman, you know, very pale, you know, her around her eyes looks all kind of red. And then we hear some kind of grunt. We don't know what it is. We look behind the counter. We see that her husband is actually handcuffed to her ankle. He is completely naked, laying <laughs> on the floor. Shortly thereafter, we see Mrs. Pickman in the basement. You know, it, it's kind of like this Lovecraftian character with all these tentacles, like a Cthulhu type of a situation. And, you know, she chops up her husband because that is the story <laughs> in the Sutter Kane book. Yeah. And, and I guess what I'm seeing in this movie is that we have a lot of things that are supposed to be normal but they all turn out to, like, be perverse, yes. you know, in some yes. way. So you have, like, this quaint little town, but it's perverse because there's all this weird shit going down. And you have, like, this church, you know, that is, it is a creepy looking kind of church in the middle of this weird field. And inside it, you know, Sutter Kane is there. And that's kind of like his, his base of operations he has like this office in there there's these doberman pinchers that are like deadly you know there's uh and then that's also where like this portal is um that we see like the old ones coming in through um so let's talk about that for a second let's talk about the makeup and creature effects in this movie because i think that's one of the things that makes it extremely successful i agree um Greg Nicotero is actually the person who worked on this movie. Um, and he and John Carpenter continue to work together throughout the rest of Carpenter's movies after this one. Um, Nicotero mentions that he really liked working on this movie because he got to do a little bit of everything. Not only did they come up with the creature effects and the special makeups, but they also even designed the book cover. So there's like a production design element here. So he got to, he worked really hard and long hours, but he also got to be really creative and he liked that. There's a great like little interview with him on that same uh, disc that we had, had watched. So the coolest thing in this has to be this wall of monsters. Um, after Sutter Kane, and it's actually a huge sequence altogether. So Trent and Styles are confronting Sutter Kane just before, like, the apocalypse really happens. And Kane kind of explains his whole deal. 
And then he goes up to this wall and starts ripping his own face apart like paper. Um, and it's like he is now the book and the wall and everything is paper because everything is his writing because he's made all of these things real. And then we see down the hole that's been made in this paper and we see like these creatures coming and they are chasing after John Trent. This wall of monsters was made out of a 22-foot-wide steel-welded frame with all of these creations built onto it with, like, foam rubber and, and things like that. And there were 14 puppeteers inside this wall wow. operating all of the articulations. And, and it was, it's just amazing because the thing's, like, barreling down this hallway they also had three guys in suits. We had one guy who kind of has tentacle hands. We have another guy who I'm calling like a shell walker. He is kind of bent over on all fours with the shell on. And on top of the shell were these arms that were operated by pistons. It was really crazy. And then we have another thing that's like this big round like blob with kind of a toothy round mouth in the middle. <laughs> and John Carpenter really loved this thing and called it the meatball dog which i thought was hilarious yeah but greg nicotero kind of explained this you know 22 foot frame of monsters as a massive parade float of monsters as that's how they kind of built it and it's a really short scene and we don't get to see all the detail of it which kind of makes it scarier i guess but the accomplishment of this ha is just really impressive because all of these things, like all, there's all these moving parts and it just feels pretty real and it looks really gruesome and scary. So when Sutter Kane rips himself apart, you know, and he is like this book and he's opening up this portal to another place, Sam Neill actually looks through this hole and we don't see these creatures at first. We simply just have to go off of John Trent's reaction, mm -hmm. which is so terrifying because we don't know what's on the other side. Now, Sutter Kane has told John Trent that if he goes through this long tunnel that is, you know, kind of looks like a mouth, it's supposed to be the mouth of madness. If he leaves this church, runs down this mouth of madness, he can get back to the real world. And... When he goes and he runs down this hallway, the way that this tunnel looks is very similar to two other things in the film. One is this covered bridge that they, they went through when they were going to Hobbs End. And it was like you look up at the slats and this kind of old barn-looking covered bridge, and you have the light coming through the slats, and it's pretty terrifying. And it also reminds you of kind of the shafts of light that are in this Mouth of Madness tunnel. It also looks like, you know, at the mental hospital, when we have that main shot, that wide shot, 
you know, down the front and it shows you the hallway, that skylight apparatus that you talked about, it looks very similar to that as well. So it shows you that all of these locations in the film are bridged together, which makes it even scarier, you know? And more questioning of whether John Trent is sane or if he's just making the shit up. (laughs) Well, then when he gets back to the real world, he... You know, he falls when he's in the mouth of madness as these monsters are running after him. He falls, and then when he gets up, he's in, you know, quote, the real world. And he runs into this paper boy um, who was played by Hayden Christensen. It's his first film role. He's like a little kid. It's crazy. It's really funny. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we had had a character on a bike before um, in the movie when they were first looking for Hobbs End in the at night um and there's this kid like riding down the middle line of the road and it's really creepy because it's complete pitch dark but then you have this and then they keep driving and we see this kid coming toward them instead of going away from them and instead of it being a kid it's like this kid who now looks like an ancient man yeah and it's kind of funny now, but when I first saw this, it scared the literal full shit out of me. <laughs> like, I couldn't even deal with it. I was just like, ah, and I was by myself, like I said, in the theater. I was like, holy shit. And, and the many other times I've watched this, and it scared me. Uh, because it just, it's, it's such a creepy image of this person, like, on the, in the middle of the road at night. And I just think it's super effective and scary. And it, it gets called back to, they also hit this person and, Oof. and they then get up and ride away, even though they're kind of seem dead at the same time. It's all really creepy. And it, it comes back later when John Trent is like trying to drive away from town that he'll be driving, you know, out and then it'll make him be driving back in because he can't escape from this location. Yeah, it's like an evil groundhog day. Yeah, exactly. You know, that that's the situation that we're faced with. There there are so many things in this movie that are scary, but for me the scariest thing is the carpenters singing we've only just begun. No. I'm joking. But that is scary. You know, that that's very scary. That song's scary to me now. They also use that in fourteen oh eight. No, it's true. You Why know? did they make the carpenters so scary? They shouldn't be. It's yeah, it's crazy. I mean the <laughs> The scariest part to me in In the Mouth of Madness is when, you know, Styles is driving and they look down at the ground and there is no ground anymore. They're driving through the sky at this dark sky at night, like through the middle of a thunderstorm, you know. And then again, they look at the road and like the road, it's like instead of having the, the dotted white line in the middle, just has like this red burning streak. It looks like a, a lava drip. Yeah. You know, when everything else, you know, goes away. When you have these these like images from the point of view of one of the characters when they're experiencing these fits of madness, that to me is the scariest part of this. Um, but yeah, when I can only imagine though driving at night, you look down at the ground. You know, the ground isn't there anymore. 
it's the sky you're driving in the clouds and it looks like a thunderstorm it looks terrifying really weird yeah Yeah. i mean it's just like where does that come from it's dreamlike it's it's very dreamlike it is and the other thing that happens to trent when he comes back to the real world is he has the manuscript he has sutter kane's manuscript and he keeps trying to get rid of it. And he can't. No, yeah. it just keeps coming back. It just keeps coming back. You know, it, he just doesn't have well, he's in any this, escape from his fate. He's in this motel and he thinks he's gotten rid of it. But then he uh, goes down to the front desk and they have this package for him. <laughs> and he opens it up and it's the manuscript again. And so he's like so pissed and he like burns it up. And then he's asking, like, where did you get this? And, and the front desk kid is like, ah, that wasn't working. And then, of course, we have this great uh, appearance by this guy, Bob Bush, um, who comes out of the back room. And, you know, he's getting mad at Trent for, like, roughing up, you know, this guy who's working there. And he's like, well, I was here and I didn't see shit. <laughs> it's like the best line delivery. I mean. It's perfect. It, and he actually, this guy's a crew guy. He's like the the men's wardrobe supervisor on this movie. And he also acted in several other Carpenter films. Um, but he's like a real MVP oh, yeah. of the one-liner in this movie. It's perfect. It, it is hilarious. I could see myself just watching a clip of him saying that line. It's just, yeah. It's just so good. It's so, so good. But we have other really cool creature effects in this as well. Um, at one point, Linda Stiles, she's kind of had a major break with reality herself. And she is, she like comes out of the car like an upside down like crab. Yes. Um, and her head is like tilted backwards. It's really creepy. It's kind of like a callback to the Norris thing in The Thing. You know, when his head was upside down and he had, you know, like the, the spider legs. It, it's like, yeah, it's a similar vibe. Very scary. They actually said uh, that they got um, an exotic dancer and she was actually able to flip around yeah, her body a, like that. Like a contortionist as well. Yeah. And so she actually is kind of walking like that. But they have like this head of Linda Stiles attached to her. Um, and yeah, it's, it's very creepy. Um, of course you mentioned Mrs. Pickman as like the tentacle monster and they had two different versions of this. They had this kind of animatronic one, um, that had like robotic movement. And then Carpenter also kind of wanted them to build something that the actress who played Mrs. Pickman could stand in so she could, uh, give lines as well. Um, I don't know if that actually appeared in the film or not. The animatronic definitely is in there when it chops off, you know, the old husband's, elderly husband's arm with the axe. Scary, scary stuff. This bloody axe comes back again and again in this movie. It's like one of the first images we see in the town. Mrs. Pickman uses an axe. Uh, And then later, uh, John Trent actually kills someone outside the bookstore with an axe. At the beginning of the movie, this guy who was ends oh, up yeah. being Sutter Kane's agent in another really creepy scene, uh, John Trent is kind of with Bernie Casey, who's another client of his, um, having lunch or whatever in a restaurant, 
and we see this guy with an axe come across the street towards them and he ends up like shattering the window next to them and then is like leaning over John Trent saying, have you read the new Sutter Kane? <laughs> Which is like our new tagline in life that we just keep saying to each other all the time. Um, yeah, so this axe is just like a recurring image in the movie and it's really gross. Um, well, we also have the axe, of course, in Prince of Darkness. Let's not forget that. That's true. You know, the axe destroys the mirror. John all... Carpenter loves an axe. He does. We also have the axe and the thing. You remember? Because yeah. when they have that siege, when all the guys are trying to take down Blair, Blair yeah. swings an axe into the lunch table that Kurt Russell is holding to kind of take him down SWAT style. We also have Childs who uses the axe to cut down the supply room door. It It's just like, you know, the axe is something that we see throughout the film. And in the Mouth of Madness, I think what the final stroke is, literally, that makes it that you feeling for John Trent is difficult is that he does actually murder someone. Yeah. Now that person does seem to be possessed. When people read the Sutter Kane book, they get this thing happening where their eyes are bleeding. You know, there's this one guy that looks like, I don't know, he's got some sores on his face. I don't know if he read the book or he just <laughs> needs to go to the dermatologist. But at the end of this, you know, it's just like there's this kid that comes out. His eyes are bleeding. And they're unnaturally blue, mm -hmm. which is another thing that happens. Like, people seem to have, like, their eyes are separating into kind of two corneas and two pupils. And, and they have the bleeding and the eyes are, like, this. the irises are distinctly blue in color. Um, so he takes that as kind of proof that this kid is possessed. And he just chops him with the axe. It's well, pretty creepy. It's terrifying. Also, on the same topic of eyes, Styles actually runs into a situation with Sutter Kane in what seems to be, mm -hmm. you know, her final moments in the film. Um, you know, because he goes and he takes the back of her head and pushes it down. And you almost feel like he put her face down, you know, on a, a Xerox machine where the mm -hmm. lid was open. And this light comes up and hits her eyes. Yeah. You know, and then she has the, the bloody eyes. But, from, but it's from his manuscript. So it's like she like instantly zapped into her consciousness, the mouth of madness. And she, you know, has been enlightened by his crazy manuscript. Well, the original ending of the story was actually that the book was going to suck up the entire town. But for budgetary reasons, they weren't able to do that. And so that's why they went with Sutter Kane being like a living book and yeah. tearing himself open. We also do have a different ending um, for the film that did exist. And at the very ending of the film, when we have John Trent, you know, who comes to this movie theater and just starts maniacally laughing and crying, Styles was actually supposed to come into the movie theater. And we know that Trent is eating popcorn and her tentacles were actually supposed to come out through the popcorn so that was like oh yeah and she also had of course the crazy eyes yeah but i don't know why they chose not to go with that if they were kind of deciding that they wanted it to be more kind of up to you yeah um because i think carpenter does like that idea of like you know it being up to the viewer um to decide you know is this guy really crazy or is this something that really happened 
I personally feel like this really happened and that Trent is like kind of is kind of the only guy who knows the truth. Um, but they don't make that definitive. Well, it's a tragic story. And I mean, that's that's what I get out of it. The, this is the end of the line for this character. And I feel like we've seen a lot of film noir movies that have this. You know, this is your last ride. You know, th- this is it. And it's, you know, it, it's a scary film. And if we did have that end sequence with Styles with this one massive tentacle coming out of the popcorn, which we saw a picture of, were the, these little ones. Man, I mean, it, it's just like, it really is cementing that the bad guys are everywhere. Yeah. You know? In this, you are watching Trent completely insane you know that everyone is dead but then you wonder is he the last man on earth Mm. is he going to be the person that has to repopulate society (laughs) can he do it you know is there someone else there is he just alone like we don't know no we don't know i mean he is kind of the only person we see um and you know it's very like meta because he kind of rips down this this poster of Hobbes and uh, Horror, I think is the name of the book. And we see behind it that in the Mouth of Madness poster has him on it. Yeah. Um, he is in the movie or in the book. So it's like he's become a part of it, but he previously existed outside of it. It's like there's so many questions here going on. And it it's kind of, again, like a, a mind fuck thing because... <laughs> you are questioning reality. You're like, what's real? What's not real? What's the basis of something being real? How do we define real? And again, I think it's a really interesting way to deal with it through the lens of fiction and storytelling. And, you know, Sutter Kane is a writer, a novelist, but John Carpenter himself is... Um, you know, a creator of fictional worlds as well. So it's kind of an interesting commentary on what it's like to create a world and control that world and everyone in it coming from somebody who does that on a regular basis. We have the sequence at the beginning when John Trent is in town and he walks by this alley and he sees a police officer beating someone up. And then he looks again, and then the police officer is, like, deformed. You know, he's, like, kind of scarred, and he, he looks kind of animalistic, you know? And we actually have that sequence again where he sees them there, except this time it's even more gruesome. And it's a dream, and he wakes up from that dream, and he rolls over, and the cop is there. Yes. So it's almost exactly the same thing that happened at the very end of Prince of Darkness, with the character Catherine being in the bed uh, with Marsh. The double scare. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really, really well done. Super effective. <laughs> yeah, it, it gets you. It gets you really well. And Sam Neill is just a fantastic actor. You know, Charlton Heston was perfectly used. Bernie Casey was great. I wish we could have had more Bernie Casey. Yeah, yeah. he's really believable in that opening and, so and likable. He's yeah. one of the few people. And then, of course, you know, we have John Glover, David Warner, terrifying, Julie Carmen. We also have Francis Bay, of course, that, that played Mrs. Pickman, you know, perfect and terrifying. I mean, we could just go down the line. she's like this little slight old lady, um, but then she becomes like this terrifying tentacle murderer. <laughs> 
It's really cool. It's well done. I mean, Peter Jason again, you know, doing the Peter Jason show, and I love it. I think and, he's great. And Wilhelm von Homburg is awesome. Yes. As this, you know, he's the father um, of, of one of these, well, we assume, these, like, creepy children. Um, and also, you know, he seems to be kind of one of the few people in town who wants to resist what's happening mm-hmm. and you know of course ends up committing suicide um to escape it and yeah i mean it kind of reminded me of a very very screwed up version of wandavision oh wow um because wandavision uh i don't want to get into the very deep information on that show because that would be a whole nother podcast probably do a whole season of podcasts on that show um, but basically, we have a situation where we have this created town that exists in the mind of, you know, the very powerful Scarlet Witch. And she's kind of mind controlling all these people. And she's creating their reality here to escape from her own trauma. And so, in a way, she's kind of similar to Sutter Kane. And in, in the although she's using, she's doing this from trauma and trying to protect herself and heal herself and Sutter Kane is just power hungry I think we're supposed to assume but it's kind of the same mechanics of what's going on and, and I, I didn't make that connection when we watched WandaVision I didn't think back to In the Mouth of Madness but when we watched this I did definitely um, think that there could be some relationship between this movie and that show well, this film also does a great job of making you think it will be a detective story. Again, we go back to this interrogation scene where Peter Jason, the con man, you know, is being grilled expertly by John Trent. Yeah. And it really does call back to Chinatown, which we know John Carpenter is a huge fan you know, of that film, right? And once again, you know, that's Roman Polanski, the director, who also directed Rosemary's Baby. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, we're just seeing, you know, these connections. We're seeing these associations over and over again. Yeah. And it's it's just, you know, I feel like that scene with the interrogation is so important because it shows us a reality. This is something that seems like it could be plausible, you know? An insurance investigator you know, would get the dirt. They would have the information. They would have the photographs. And, you know, really, you know, we go to that scene in the diner with Bernie Casey. And then we have Sutter Kane's agent smashing this window of this diner, you know, where, where John Trent and uh, Robinson, that's Bernie Casey's character, are eating. You know, it's just like this really, really calm dialogue between these two men. Yeah. They're talking about work. And then in the background, you can just see... You know, this actor coming closer and closer and he doesn't look right and he has an axe and you don't know what's going on. And then wham, it's that that's this film. This film is like a fast moving freight train. And if you aren't paying attention, you're going to get run over. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really well done movie. Again, it's not quite as complex, I think, as Prince of Darkness because there's not the science element but it's still like very twisty with like because you don't know what's real and what's fake and when you take out your ability to have that basic knowledge that something is real 
mm-hmm. it just completely takes away your safety. Yeah. Like your safety is gone. And that's where the horror comes from here. And I think that's really cool and very complicated and not, you know, your standard garden variety horror movie. Yeah. And that's what I, I think we both love about John Carpenter when we have had a really good time talking about his movies over the course of the month. Although we have probably just about killed ourselves dealing <laughs> with them, uh, you know, because they are just very complex. They're very interesting, but there's just so much to it. It's it's not something where we did just want to watch it once. We wanted to watch it multiple times because you want to explore all of these issues that he's dealing with. These are not simple stories, even if they seem simple on the surface. So that's why we ended up doing, you know, six in four weeks instead of four, because we just were so interested in exploring all of what he had to offer. And we even watched Christine and didn't do a show on it as well. Oh, yeah. I've watched other things. I watched Body Bags. I've watched uh, Vampires. I watched Ghosts of Mars. You know, there are so many that are on the list. And, yeah, everything in these films is connected, and it's wonderful once you start seeing those connections. But you see so many, you just want to go down every path. I mean, one last thing that I'll fire off here is, you know, we have They Live, right? We, we have these, these evil aliens. This is actually very similar to The Thing, where you can't tell who's who, yeah. you know? And, you know, in The Thing, you had, you know... Dean Cundy giving you that flash of light in the person's eyes to let you know they're not the thing. But in They Live, you know, you needed, you know, the sunglasses. Yeah. You know, you needed you needed that to see. So And again, it's perception. It's, mm. it's, it all goes back to perception. Yeah, yeah. Like in They Live, it's a perception of what these aliens really are. Yeah. You know, you're able to see through the glasses to see what, who they really are. In the thing, the perception is of, you know, who is who is a person and who has been taken over. Right. And it's not something that you can define through easy means. Uh, in Prince of Darkness, we have the perception that's down to the level of what is reality and mm-hmm. what isn't. You know, are you real? Is the world real? Is the Satan creature real? Is our consciousness real? I mean, all of these things, all of these things. And then in the mouth of madness, is anything real or right. is it all a construct? And, you know, it it's, it's a hell of a question. It really just opens you up to having to wonder about the fundamental things that you kind of thought you could take for granted yeah and i mean you have it also in halloween in the fog you have these very nice places to live you know yeah and you don't think anything's going to happen and these are very tortured places but you're yeah you're not safe no um and and you know these forces that are coming for you that you never would have thought could happen in your safe place you're not safe at all you need to have Donald Pleasance with you packing heat, <laughs> and then you'll at be At all okay. times. At all times. At all times. All right. Well, thank you for sticking with us through this very deep conversation about 
really weird questions (laughs) (laughs) in these movies. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope that, you know, you would go back and watch Prince of Darkness again and maybe think of some things that you've never thought of before. Um, But thanks for joining us throughout all four weeks of this John Carpenter horror movie exploration. It's been great. And somehow we still want to watch more John Carpenter movies and talk about them. So that good. stay tuned in the future. We may have another appearance. Next week, we will be back to start off a new series, this time of mysteries. Um, inspired by John Carpenter, we're going to start out with an Alfred Hitchcock film, Rear Window, which I've seen many times and uh, I really love it. So we hope that you will join us for that series. And until then, in spite of the fact that absolutely nothing in this world is real, stay comfy. Stay comfy, everybody.